Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to be doing a deep dive on um, the Fed, which is a fascinating topic. It's the central bank in the U.S. It has way more impact over your life and my life and Americans' lives than uh, a lot of people like to give it credit for. Yeah. And so, and you've been snowed. I mean, that's the bottom line of what this guy's going to tell you. You've been you've snowed, been fleeced. I've never heard the term snowed before. Really? Yeah. Well, it's a thing. Did you just make it up? No, I didn't. It'd be sort of gangster if you made it up, though. <laughs> anyway, they have been hiding the truth from you, and they have been screwing you. You've been snickerdoodled. <laughs> You've been lioned, clawed. Most media doesn't bother to tell you about it. They think you're too dumb to understand, but we know better. And yeah. uh, Chris Leonard does a wonderful job in his book, Lords of Easy Money, in explaining the history of the Fed, what they've done since the financial crash, how extraordinary it's been, and ultimately how it has fueled mass inequality and devastation for working no, class people. For real, you have to get the book, Lords of Easy Money, yeah. because the Fed is shrouded in mystery. Did I make up the word shrouded? Or are we just making up no, words today? Word. That, okay, that's a word. All right, we'll go with that. <laughs> it's been shrouded in mystery. So um, it, some smart people I know say, hey, it's a, it's public. Some people say it's private. Some people say it's a mix of public and private. Uh, what the hell is it really? They were They drove the train in 2008, and they were the ones who made a lot of the decisions about doing the bailouts and how much they're going to bail it out. And then eventually they did this thing called quantitative easing, which is just corporate bailouts. And so anyway, they're immensely powerful. They've had a tremendous impact on the economy. They're arguably put us in this horrendous current situation that we're in. So read the book. You're going to love the interview. Um, anyway, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about January 6th and what Joe Biden did. Uh, Look, I'm going to say it a little crassly, but okay. it is what it is. So he walked out there and he put his nuts on the table. Okay. He's like, you see these? <laughs> these are nuts. And I have them. And so He's he... So old. I he, don't want that. True. True. Um, <laughs> as if it'd be fine if he was young and he put his nuts That'd on the be table. better. <laughs> At least you got some young nuts. What can I say? <laughs> anyway, uh, let's show the video of what he was saying to Trump on January 6th. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes in a full and free and fair election. There is simply zero proof the election results are inaccurate. In fact, in every venue where evidence had to be produced, an oath to tell the truth had to be taken, the former president failed to make his case. Now, he went on... Uh, and he said, we must be absolutely clear about what is true and what is a lie. And here's the truth. The former president created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle. He can't accept that he lost. He basically goes on to say, homeboy's a narcissist. His ego's too big. He just couldn't accept that he lost. And so now he made up that, you know, he went all in on these conspiracy theories and they are wrong. They're incorrect. I won the election. www getoverit.net. So listen, he went in. Before we, I continue here, what do you think of it? So as you know, I was doing breaking points when he was giving the speech. So this is actually the first time really like engaging a lot with it. And frankly, I didn't know he had this in him anymore. <laughs> I mean, most of his appearances, they're kind of subdued. They're a little jumbled. They're, you know, he's not super on it, super energetic. So energy level, I think, is impressive. I mean, for him to go out there and be as clear-cut and as forceful, um, 
personally, I like to see it. So I'm going to come back more in a second to your point there. But um, Trump actually responded. He just responded. He lashed out at Biden. Um, he said two two main points. Number one is you're just trying to deflect from like the terrible job you're doing as president. That's what you're doing right now. And point number two is you're just using my name to try to further divide America. So on one of those points, I think Trump is kind of right. That, the deflection. Yes. He's like, you know, don't look at my approval ratings down in the dumps. Um, you know, I haven't got another stimulus check out to people. Couldn't get Bill Back Better passed. Yada, yada, yada. Inflation. You name it. Right. So on that front, I think Trump is right. This one, the other point is hilarious. Use my name to try to further divide America. What do you think you're doing you're by downplaying divisive. the election every 17 seconds? Yeah, you're, you're literally the most divisive. polarizing and divisive yeah. figure in American politics. Yeah, I mean, so here's what I would say, bigger picture about Biden outside of like, yay, I like the energy. Um, the problem is that the, the obvious proximate cause of January 6th is Donald Trump, insane conspiracy theories, a bunch of horrific, complicit individuals and the people right wing media, right wing media, right wing media and, and the, the propaganda. Totally. And then the people themselves who decided to take it upon themselves to storm the Capitol and behave like a bunch of criminal idiots. Right. So those are the proximate causes. But Biden has done a horrific job of addressing any of what you could possibly consider underlying causes that led to the country to be in such a fucked up place that such a thing could ultimately happen. Whether you want to think about economics, whether you want to think about voting rights and democracy reform, I mean, he has failed to deliver on any of it and has not brought this kind of energy to those fights. So that's my main point is as I watched this, I was like, look, it's cool. I like that you're finally, you know, showing a little backbone, showing a little spine, getting loud, getting aggressive, being forceful, because I think strength is actually an underrated um, benefit in politics. I think oftentimes politicians are too meek and too nebbish and they think like, I can't be aggressive because I might rub people the wrong way. And it's like, actually, no, sometimes you got to straight up alpha some shit. You got to go out there and be like, I'm the man in this bitch, whether or not you want me to be. And some people will just respect it on tone alone. But yeah, the big problem is I didn't see one tenth of this energy in dealing with Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and everybody who is standing in the way of Build Back Better. I didn't see anything. In fact, I saw the opposite. I saw... You talking to the media saying you and Joe Manchin are friends and you're slapping him on the back and calling him JoJo as he's going out there basically ripping your entire agenda to shreds. Kirsten Cinema used to run ads when she was in Congress on, I want to lower drug prices. Then she takes over a million dollars from pharma and all of a sudden she flips on that and you don't have anything to say about it. You didn't call a single press conference. You didn't call her out by name. You didn't call Joe Manchin out by name. You didn't say, hey, here's why they switched their position because they're taking money from the corporations. I want to represent you and they're blocking me from representing you. They're the problem. Go march on their offices. Go call their offices and tell them that this is unacceptable. Go knock on doors in Arizona and plan to get her out. And hell, I'll, I'll aid a primary challenge against her because if she doesn't do the right thing, this is on her. Go join the other party if you're going to act like this. I didn't see any of that when it came to Build Back Better and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, And t that tells me everything. Because yeah. you care enough, Joe Biden, to go out there, show some backbone when it comes to the broad cultural disagreements of like Republicans bad, Trump bad, January 6th bad. I agree with all those things. It's also the lowest hanging fruit on the planet. Like, oh, no shit. Storming the Capitol with, you know, people breaking windows and yeah. shit is a bad thing. Wow. <laughs> what are you actually <laughs> going to fight for? And the answer is nothing. You're just going to fight for your cultural legacy and your virtue signaling as I'm a good Democratic president and they're the bad Republicans. And 
Ultimately, when push came to shove, you didn't fight at all on the things that you needed to fight on, and that's criminal. Well, here's another here's another example, and I think yours are really good. And remember when Bernie was running for president, people would say, well, how are you going to get someone like Joe Manchin to go along? He said, I'm going to go to West Virginia. Right. I'm going to do the rally. I'm going to make it uncomfortable Give for a speech him. like this. That's it. Does it work or not? I mean, we could debate all day long about whether there were tactics that could have worked, but you didn't even try. Right. Okay? So there's that. But even putting that aside— Right now, and we're going to talk to Chris Leonard some about inflation, one of the key drivers of inflation, which is really hurting working class people and taking a, uh, and reversing all of the wage gains that they've experienced, is corporate greed. Plain and simple. Corporate profiteering. 60%, according to Matt Stoller, of the rise in inflation is due to corporations using inflation as an excuse, large multinationals, to further jack up their prices. Use this energy to go after them. Put them on blast. And you know what? Under FDR, just the fact of him aggressively going after companies was enough to, in certain cases, for them to pull back the price gouging because they were being publicly shamed about it. And that ultimately is the only check when you have monopolies of corporations, you know, jacking up their prices. And so there's another perfect example where Bring this energy to call them out. He released his like meatpacking. Well, I'm going to go billion dollar initiative. Billion dollars. I'm going to help. That's a long term thing. It's also I I talked to some of the advocates in the field. Totally ineffective. If anything, I'll only make things worse because you'll prop up a little bit these small meatpacking plants. They'll fail because you haven't dealt with the structural issues, and then the big guys will just buy them up too. So you've just like further consolidated the industry is what you may have done. But even putting aside the specifics of the policy, there was none of this kind of energy when it came to dealing with what voters tell pollsters is their number one issue right now, which is the economy and inflation. So it's very easy. I I think this speech will put a little bit more pep in the step of the Democratic base. What else will it do? Nothing. Because ultimately, as you're pointing out, it's easy to have this take. It doesn't challenge any of, you know, the people who put you in power, who funded your campaigns. It doesn't challenge Wall Street. It doesn't challenge any of these forces. It just aligns you with your, you know, partisan team, which you were already well aligned with. What ultimately, what are you doing? I just covered a story the other day. New polls came out on Biden. He's doing terrible. He's at a record high disapproval in in a certain poll and it went through the numbers. He's even underwater now when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. It was a strong suit of his previously. Now he's underwater with that too. And so people are looking at you and going, what are you doing? Like, what are you actually doing? What are you doing to try to improve lives? When he had his highest approval rating, what, what happened? He cut a stimulus check for everybody. Yeah. You know? The swagger he had when he pulled out of Afghanistan and the media was berating him to go back in and then he called a press conference and was like, no, I'm not gonna do that. Hey, like them apples. You haven't done anything in months and people see that. And so now you want to go out there and show that you're capable of fighting and talking and being aggressive. It does make it worse. It does make it worse. Because it's like, oh, oh, you could. You you could have done something all along. (laughs) Everybody's got this, this picture of Joe Biden in their mind. And it was for understandable reasons that he's half a zombie and he's laying in the Oval Office bed in his pajamas and he's watching reruns of like Murder, She Wrote or something while eating ice cream. And everybody thought that because it's understandable. Look at him. But he comes out now and you're like, oh, so when they give you some Addy, you go out there and you could sort of run shit, but you you haven't been doing it. And so now the empty virtue signaling is the thing 
that annoys me because it's like, what hinges on this? Absolutely nothing hinges on this. We all agree January 6th is bad, or I should be clear, more like, what, 80% of the population? Mm-hmm. 70, 80% of the population agrees that January 6th was bad. Right. Um, you know, I, I certainly agree. Crystal certainly agrees that, you know, there, a lot of people have gone down that rabbit hole and have been brainwashed and it's just not true. The election wasn't stolen. Sager was viewed as a populist right figure. He's viewed Stop the Steal as like a last straw for him where he's like, these people are fucking crazy. I'm not with them. Joe, we get it. We get it. That's easy. That's obvious. What are you going to do with your power? Because if all you have is the empty virtue signaling, I also had this feeling of like, oh no, he's doing the end zone dance at like four yards to to the end zone. He's not in the end zone yet. And he's starting to do the end zone dance Mm. because he was, you know, you lost by 7 million votes. You lost by that. And I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, bro, you and Trump are like tied right now in the polls and he wants to run again in 2024. Pump your brakes. He could easily win in this next election. Oh, easily. Easily. If if Joe even runs again. I mean, that's the other question. And he's like their best hope. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he fought a Kamala Pete? or Mayor Pete. Forget about it. Welcome back, President Trump. So anyway, I like the energy. I don't like the fact that uh, you didn't put any of this energy, even one-tenth this energy, into getting Bill Back Better well, passed. I guess the last thing I'll say on this is, yeah, there's a, a lot of energy around, you know, concern, rightful concern, about their machinations to steal the next election. But it's like, how? what about if you just lose to them, then they don't even have to steal it. That's the point and I made so, Bill Maher said that. What are, yeah. you, like, what are you doing to put yourself in a position even to win to start with? So you have to worry about whether they're going to steal the next election. That's actually right. Yeah, they're doing what Trump did previously when Trump was running against Hillary. He was like, she's going to steal it. Up. She's going to steal it. She's going to steal it. And of course, he ended up winning. And then now, yeah, Biden's doing the same thing with Trump. He's he they he tried to steal it once, which is true. They mm-hmm. did affect yeah. him. They remember the phone call with the Georgia guy, go find me votes or whatever yeah. the fuck mm-hmm. he said. Yeah. Like he, clearly they tried he, to do it. He wanted to do it. But yeah, you, you might not even have to go in at the current rate yeah, that we're going. You let a, I mean, if you run Kamala Harris, then they're not going to have to like put in their secretary of state and find votes or whatever. They're just going to win. Good googly moogly. Yeah. All right, talk to me about Candace Owens. Okay, so uh, Candace Owens, she's been getting a lot of headlines lately. She's doing her new... Never heard of her. N- ...new show. <laughs> um, she got a lot of attention. Did we? I think we talked here about her thing with uh, Trump. I don't know. I can't remember whether it was here or Breaking Points. Anyway, I'm sure we both talked about... She interviewed the president. It was... She wanted desperately to push him in the direction of like, oh, actually, the vaccines are bad. And he, he really kind of owned her in that moment. She kept going back to it and he kept just being like, no, the vaccines are good. We should be proud of it. They work, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So her most recent uh, foray that is getting a lot of attention is she claims that she has is unvaccinated. And she actually says that she would rather die from COVID than get the preventative COVID vaccine. Let's take a listen to that. Next question. Are you really unvaccinated? Really? And then there is a shared tweet uh, that says Candace Owens is lying to her followers about being vaccinated. And it shows me um, at the UFC. And it's, I guess, planning for your event. Oh, the Madison Square Garden website, which says that you've had at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine prior to attending. I would um, I would say to the people, first and foremost, I am obviously unvaccinated. You follow the story of me trying to get a COVID test in Aspen. And I only had to get a COVID test to show that it was negative because I was unvaccinated. So I didn't go through those jumps and hoops pretending to be vaccinated. I am not getting this vaccine ever. Never going to get it. I don't care if I'm on my deathbed and they say it can save you. I'm not going to get it. I'm principally now opposed to it. And I do not understand 
why anybody who is healthy, able-bodied, and, and young would ever get this vaccine if you're not at risk of COVID. Um, again, personal choice. You can choose something differently. Regarding the UFC event, I would, um, I would instruct you to not to visit the Madison Square Garden website, but to visit uh, the New York uh, City Law website. You better understand that every time uh, the elites make laws for you, there is a way that they can get around the laws that they're making for you. Um, and there are carve-outs in New York City of when you do not need to present a vaccine card. And fortunately, I fall under one of those carve-outs. That's all I'll say about that. Interesting. Okay. Go ahead. Before we get into the vaccine stuff, she just admitted she's an elite. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we well, obviously, that. for elites, there are carve outs and there are workarounds and there are loopholes. And I so used one of those. I used one of those. <laughs> what? I, what happened to the whole, like, you know, we're here fighting for working people and we're like populists on the right? Also, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of skepticism about all of this with her. And uh, I've seen the same thing about, oh, she was at Madison Square Garden and they require a vaccine, but she's very adamant that she's unvaccinated. Well, so. But there know. was a hint of thou dost protest too much. Like, why, first of all, why are we even talking about it? That thing was on Twitter, like, months ago. Nobody, nobody's been talking about it. I forgot about it until she just brought it up again here. Mm-hmm. Um, it does strike me as, like, pretty defensive, doesn't it? Yeah, she had her whole little story ready to go about, like, well, you saw me take have to take a test. Of course I wouldn't jump through those hoops if I was vaccinated. I don't know. I was... No idea. I was, like, going into it, I was, like, 70% sure she was unvaccinated. Yeah. Now coming out of it, I'm, like... 50 percent sure she's unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she actually sort of pushed me a little bit in the other direction. Yeah, because she was a little too, shatter rationalizations a little too cooked up there. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's one point in there where she goes, she says, I'm obviously unvaccinated. But she said it immediately <laughs> after talking about showing the thing that says you have to have at least one dose of the vaccine to get to Madison Square Garden. And there she is in Madison <laughs> Square Garden. And so when she said it immediately after showing that, I was like, why is that obvious? That's not obvious at all. In uh, fact, the evidence in front of my face would indicate, if anything, it's obvious in the other direction that you had at least one shot of it. Yeah, I'm obviously unvaccinated. I'm obviously unvaccinated. As the thing on screen is like, you have to have at least one dose in order to be in Madison Square Garden, and here you are in Madison Square Garden. The thing that's weird to me, so, I mean, obviously, by the way, quick correction, she doesn't actually say she'd rather die of COVID. She just says she'd rather be on her deathbed, and they say this vaccine will save you. Yeah, and, and by the way, that's not how it works. You can't get the vaccine course, on your deathbed. I know, yeah. of course. <laughs> anyway, but her point is basically, I'd rather die than take right, yeah. this vaccine. I just... She says, quote, I'm principally opposed to it. She's against it in principle. Not even just, hey, I'm against it because I evaluated the evidence, and the evidence I don't think is strong enough or whatever, which would be incorrect to take that position anyway. But she doesn't even say... Based on the on the stuff I've seen, she just says I'm principally opposed to it, I, this, which is a this, step beyond that. I mean, this is this is an insane way of looking at the world, and for all of um, the rights, you know, critique of some of the insanity that exists on uh, in liberals with you know sc- shutting down schools, which I did a whole thing on, which I think is you know a, totally objectionable and wrong at this point, based on what we know about harm to kids, and you know the the obsessions, they still calling for lockdowns and like, you know, got to be masked everywhere, even where we're outside. Like, they're happy to realize that that is sort of insane and you've taken things too far and you're not following the science. You're just going for like an ideology and a virtue signal. This is like 
way more oh, insane. You're yeah, willing it's to all culture war bullshit. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 telling your followers. I mean, I don't believe this for one second, by the way, but you're telling your followers that it's noble to like be willing to die to not get vaccinated. That's just crazy. She says, quote, why would you get it if you're young and healthy? And the answer is because you have a 90 percent protection from severe illness, hospitalization and death. Candace, that's why you get it. 90 percent protection from severe illness, hospitalization and death. That's not Kyle Kalinske speaking. That's not Crystal Ball speaking. That's a study from France with over 20 million people in it. So and now understand when those studies come out, you and I've had this conversation before when there's a study that comes out that's funded by Pfizer and it says, here are our numbers on our vaccine. Rip it up, use it for toilet paper. I, I don't accept that. And usually what we've seen is they actually do juice their numbers. They do it maybe 10 percent roughly in, in that ballpark. They'll juice it, but they juice them. So I get it. You don't want to look at the evidence directly from the people who have the uh, conflict of interest and the incentive to tell you the best possible picture. But once independent studies come out, once double blind peer reviewed studies come out, you are just a dumbass if you don't look at it and go, yeah, that's fair. That sounds science. I don't know what you want me to tell you. What is the principle? I mean, I really I really don't understand. I I get what you're saying about. There are a lot of people who have had terrible experiences with the healthcare system. They're justifiably extremely skeptical of big pharma. They've been led astray by people like Candace Owens and others. So I get that. I get a principle of like, I want to have a choice. I understand the argument. I'm personally in favor of the vaccine or test regime. Um, but I understand the argument of like, listen, I want it to be my choice. I don't want to have any mandates in place. I don't want people losing their jobs over this if they decide to go in another direction. I don't understand the principle of just absolutely under no circumstances, no. No matter if it's going to save my life, no matter what piece of information you put in front of me, no. What is, what's the principle? I mean, shit, Crystal. There's like eight (laughs) different answers I could give to that. And some of them are just like psychological evaluations. And some of them are based on culture. And some of it's based on virtue signaling to her audience, which wants her to throw this red meat out to them. I don't know. I don't know what would lead somebody to say I'm, quote, principally opposed to a vaccine. Principally opposed to a vaccine? That's like saying I'm principally opposed to modern medicine. That's like what that's saying. I mean, I only take homeopathic remedies or, you know, it's like there are some people who are like, you know, have religious beliefs that keep them from using any modern medicine. But Candace Owens is not one of them. So and and you can't say it just solely stems from like a distrust in the institutions, because the fact of the matter is, in many ways, conservatives trust institutions. Also, some of the people who are putting out anti-vax stuff turn around and they're like, I need the monoclonal antibodies. I have I have uh, covid. And it's like, okay, well, that's also made by big pharma. So why is one thing from big pharma not okay? This other thing from big pharma is okay. You can't say it's all born out of just skepticism of the institutions if when you actually get COVID, you're like, let me take six other products that are made by big pharma. It's just, it has become now a culture war thing. That's what it's become. And I think the primary thing motivating her is own the libs. Like just, I'm whatever they are, I'm the opposite. At all costs. It's complete. It's the definition of reactionary, right? Own the, own the libs by being willing to die. I mean, it's just, it's, again, it's, I, I think the most, the most sensical reading of it is what you said, which is just she's trying to triangulate what she thinks her audience will like the most and what she right, thinks of course. they ultimately want to hear. Of There's course. really like getting into any sort of deep analysis of what the principle might be is probably a little off base when the principle is just like to tell people what she thinks they want to hear. Yeah. And there, it's not it's not intelligent. It's not interesting. It's stale. It's dumb. Look, you guys know me and Crystal. Nobody has gone into more detail 
looking at the thousand and one ways that big pharma is a scourge and how there's conflicts of interest. They bought the government. I'm the one who, based on the story from The Intercept, I covered this the second I saw it. You have molnupiravir, the drug that came out. It was only 30% effective. The FDA still approved it. And when they approved it, they were like, by the way, this isn't all that effective, but we're going to go ahead and approve it. It was funded. The research for it was funded by taxpayers through Emory University. And then they turn around, they buy up the rights to, to the drug, and then they charge the government 40 times what it costs to make. We're all over the malfeasance of big pharma. But like you always hear me say, that doesn't mean antibiotics don't work if you have a bacterial infection. Right. In fact, they do work if you have a bacterial infection. Not to mention, as bad as the world of ph- the pharmaceutical industry is, the like snake oil salesman in the subs- in the uh, alternative, alternative medicine. medicine. Yeah, they're, ju- they're just as bad if not worse. Oh, they're worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no regulation there. They can say almost anything that they want. They can sell you something and say that it's one thing and it's really another thing. There's like no checks from the government. So the homeopathic crap is just pure snake oil. So that's even worse. And look, at this point, if you look at the data coming out from this country where the healthcare system is totally fucked, but from other countries around the world, you see very, very consistent data that it reduces the vaccine is effective. Yes, there are a lot of breakthrough cases, but severe hospitalization and Severe death, illness, hospitalization and death. Right. You are much less likely to be at risk. And there's also a measure of, she says, the young and healthy thing. Like there is a measure of personal and societal responsibility to this too, right. because you are going to interact with people who aren't young and healthy, who may be immunocompromised, who may be elderly. And so the vaccines provide them with less protection than they ultimately provide you. And by having the vaccine, you are still able to spread it, but you are less likely to spread it, which is something that they often ultimately want to ignore. So so let's just finish on this. What, yeah. um, what percentage of the conservative hosts who are take, nominally taking this position are vaccinated versus unvaccinated because we've seen... Well, which position? You mean... The, oh, I'm not getting the vaccine thing because what we saw is with the... There were like, well, what, six, seven different more local level or state level conservative hosts who got COVID and ended up dying from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then... Local radio hosts and stuff. Point I've made watching this unfold all the time is you haven't seen a single national right-wing figure die from COVID. A lot of them are old. A lot of them are white. A lot of them have pre-existing conditions or whatever, immunocompromised, you haven't seen any. You haven't seen Mark Levin. You haven't seen Sean Hannity. You, know, you go down the list, right? Yeah. Well, so I, mean, we, I think... We do know Fox News has a vaccine or test They do. Policy. Yeah. So all of those people are probably vaccinated. Well, that's my, my... I think that the ones at the local and state level, the conservative hosts, are more true believers. Yeah. Like, they actually believe the things that they're saying. Whereas, at the national level, a lot of them are just playing a character. And so, they might act one way on TV. Tucker Carlson, I'm certain, got the vaccine. And he's been spreading a lot of this anti-vax stuff, too. So I think they're not the true believers, generally speaking, at the national level. And that's why you haven't seen any of them really run into any trouble when a lot of the local and state level conservative radio hosts are are croaking from getting COVID. Well, as Candace Freely admits here, uh, they're elites. I mean, the conservative national level folks are elites. They travel in elite circles. They frankly share a lot of the same, like, sort of ideology that the, you know, liberal elites that they decry ultimately share and similar lifestyles. So, yeah, you wouldn't be surprised. That's how you know the vaccine works is because who was the first one to get it? 
all the rich people, mm-hmm. all the moneyed interests, all the politicians. Yeah. They lined up down the block and they got it. And right. meanwhile, they're trying to keep the vaccine from the developing world exactly. so Big Pharma can make money. That's how you know this vaccine is safe and effective. Yeah, when you look if at they were globally. It, <laughs> yeah, if they were like, yeah, we're going to try it in here, Africa Africans, first. Try it. <laughs> And then you got, you know, you got the elites here that are like, I'm not taking that shit. Yeah, then you'd be like, like we're hey, start what's going in on like here? A poor black yeah. community in Mississippi. That's where we're going to start our vaccine yeah. distribution. We went like, to Rwanda <laughs> because they deserve it first. <laughs> yeah, then, then definitely have a little skeptical eyebrow. Right. But the fact that they're keeping it exclusively for the rich world, allowing the variants to circulate in the developing countries so that they can continue to make money off of this thing. That's that's their game. Every living president is vaccinated and probably every Fortune 500 CEO is vaccinated. And you know damn well they get the best of everything immediately. So there you have it. Yeah, she feeds into, you know, there's this liberal, liberals love to say like Republicans are in a death cult. Like Candace saying she'd literally die rather than uh, violate her principled take against vaccines, period, full stop. I mean, that sort of proves that point. Sort of proves that yeah, point. Yeah, very sad. Okay. Um, excited to get to this interview. Christopher Leonard, he's a business reporter. He's also an investigative journalist. He's written for the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Bloomberg Business Week. Um, he's written a number of really wonderful books. He wrote Cokeland, which I read, which was great. The Meat Racket, which I have not read, but now I want to. Softcore porn, that one. <laughs> you really caught up uh, The Meat and- Racket? That's what I would name a softcore <laughs> porn if I made it, wouldn't you? No, because it sounds gross. That's the whole point. <laughs> okay. What are you going to call it? Puppies and rainbows have sex? That's not good. <laughs> the All Meat right. Racket. The Meat Racket. <laughs> and the book that we are going to dig into with him, it's called The Lords of Easy Money, all about history of the Fed and the way that they have had an incredibly direct and devastating hand screwing up our economy. Let's get right to it. Joining us now, we have Christopher Leonard. Great to have you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, So I've been reading the book. It's fantastic. Um, I was just telling you it really is a gift to be able to make something that can be as dense as the Fed (laughs) and the history of the Fed into something that is really compelling and readable, but you've done it. It also happens to be a topic that both of us have been trying to learn more about and very interested in. I wondered if you could start with, because I thought this was an interesting thing, um, where the Fed comes from, what it does, and it now seems like so sort of dense and esoteric and something that only a handful of elites really talk about, but Fed and uh, central banking used to be sort of the beating heart of populist politics. So if you could set us up with a little bit of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, to kind of start with as the headline, there's there's been this very intentional trend to try to make the Federal Reserve seem like something that is, you know, so complicated and so abstract that normal people could just never understand what's going on inside of it. And we really need to leave the operation to PhD uh, technocrats who can understand this sort of hyper complex reality. But yeah, as you said, when you turn the clock back, you can see that, you know, 100 years ago, the politics of money and the creation of currency was really retail politics. It was stuff that people got passionate about in the same way they might get passionate about gun rights or, or abortion today. You know, William Jennings Bryan, when he was on the campaign trail, probably said the most famous quote that's ever been said about monetary policy when he said that you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. 
And, you know, that line was uh, a crowd. Uh, it was a line that riled up the crowd. It got people really passionate. And it was about monetary policy. And th the reason why monetary policy was such a live wire back then in the early 1900s is that people understood intimately how much it affected their lives. Back, back then, you know, it's so interesting with this sort of like crypto debate we've got going on today. Back in the early 1900s, there were literally thousands of currencies in the United States. And our country was really resistant to the idea of forming a government-run central bank because that whole idea was kind of anathema to the American idea of, you know, decentralized power, democratic control. There was this worry that if we created a government-run central bank that it would essentially like displace the private sector. But unfortunately, you can't run an effective industrialized capitalist society without a central bank. If you could do it, we would have done it. You know, we started a central bank twice and got rid of it. But by 1913, we realized we really need a central bank. And so the Federal Reserve was formed, interestingly, from a populist movement to have a stable currency system. And, and so the Fed was created with two basic jobs. One was to create and manage a national currency. That thing that we call a dollar is actually in real life a Federal Reserve note. The Fed created the dollar for the first time in 1913. And, and then the second thing the Fed was supposed to do was to be on deck in case there was a financial panic. The idea was that the Fed would be the so-called lender of last resort. It would print money and loan it to banks that were otherwise healthy to stop financial panics. So that's why we created the Fed. And it had, you know, pretty important mandates at the time. Creating and managing a currency is no small thing. But it had a, a narrow lane of things it was supposed to do, you know, just manage the money supply and be there in case of a bank panic. So that's that's where the Fed came from. And over time, power became more and more centralized in, in the Fed's leadership team in Washington, D.C. And, and its footprint in our economy or the power it has over our economy grew and grew. So uh, let's walk everybody through this because I find this topic incredibly fascinating. So you go back all the way from the founding of the country up until the early 1900s. You had a system. And there were like a, a couple of attempts to create a central bank somewhere in there, but you know yeah. they fell through or were dismantled relatively quickly. I think one had like a 20-year run or something, and then it was dismantled. But so effectively, all the way from the founding of the country all the way up until the early 1900s, you had these uh, amazing boom bust cycles you'd have these panics you'd have these runs on the banks and so when that did happen you know the entire u.s economy was effectively uh, obliterated over the course of a day or a week and then what happened in the early 1900s is same sort of panic happened and then you had uh jp morgan who was one of the richest uh men in the country and he along with other wall street bankers they basically said, look, we're going to be the backstop here. We're going to effectively try to come in and save the day and provide capital and liquidity to, you know, the banks that have effectively seized up. So do I have that history uh, correct or am I missing anything there? You have that history 100% correct. I would just sort of 
reemphasize how awful it was during the 1800s. Our financial system was a disaster uh, for multiple reasons. As I said, we had thousands of currencies. So if I lived in Illinois and I went to Oregon to stay in a hotel, I would bring Illinois currency and have to get into an argument with uh, you know, the hotel clerk in Oregon as to whether or not my currency was sound. It just didn't work. And I, the, the headline about our financial system before the Fed is that it was defined by wild financial instability, long periods of deflation, mm -hmm. and then periodic banking panics that were economically ruinous. And, and some of the biggest banking panics happened in the early 1900s. And, and the bailout you're talking about in 1907 was pretty remarkable when you had one banker, J.P. Morgan, step in and and bail out the banking system in the middle of a panic. And that was sort of the last straw politically, where people said, we can't just be reliant on, on this tiny coterie of bankers on Wall Street. And uh, again, there's one really interesting wrinkle to this history, which is that the movement to create a national con uh, currency was part of the populist movement, you know, pushed by farmers in the 1900s with the original kind of leftist uh, populist tradition that sought to put a leash on Wall Street and the Wall Street financiers and the biggest of the big banks to crack down on monopolies and to give more power to uh, the working people, which in, in, at that time was, was the farmers. These were the people pushing for a central bank. But there was a, a really interesting kind of switch at the very end when it became obvious that a central bank was going to be formed. A, a group of bankers got together and had this famous meeting uh, at a resort off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about this a lot. People always like to call the Fed the creature from Jekyll Island because it's got such a romantic flair to it. But what these bankers did was they got together and struck a deal that they would later present to the Senate. And the deal was this. Oh, they, they said, okay, fine. We will have a government-run central bank. But critically, this central bank is going to keep Wall Street at the forefront. In other words, we're going to create the central bank behind the Wall Street-run private banking system so that the government can't take over Wall Street. And, and, you know, for the purposes of our discussion, this is going to become really important later mm. because those populists had all kinds of wild ideas, like creating a central bank uh, that would have been run through these sort of dispersed uh, treasuries that were out in the middle of the country that would have used like grain silos as an asset. But that populist view was overturned and we had a central bank that was designed to operate explicitly through the Wall Street banks. And that was the deal that made it through the Senate and got uh, passed in 1913 and created the central uh, the central bank or the Federal Reserve as it exists today. And so let's talk a little bit more about that, because one of the things that you asserted is that the original structure, while intentionally designed to keep Wall Street at the forefront, was sort of distributed and dispersed, powers dispersed across the country. So you did have community banks with footholds in, you know, the local neighborhoods that were involved in Fed policy decision-making. That sort of shifts over time and the balance of power, first of all, banks consolidate, that's a big part of the story, but the balance of power shifts towards DC. Take us through that piece. Yeah, so so when the, when the Fed is made, 
it, it like its structural DNA contains this tension of like, you know, we don't want one central bank to have too much power. So they created a system that was really kind of modeled on the political system of the United States. So in fact, what we call the Federal Reserve is a Federal Reserve system composed of 12 regional banks, which we could think of as being like states, okay? There's a regional bank in Kansas City, there's one in Boston, there's one in San Francisco. And this network of regional banks was seen as being kind of like a federal system of, of a central bank. And critically, there was gonna be a headquarters building in Washington, DC, okay? That's the center hub of the Fed, it's in a building called the Eccles Building right on the mall in Washington, D.C. But that Eccles Building, the headquarters, is not itself a bank, okay? It's just like the, the administrative office. So for decades, the Federal Reserve ran as this loosely affiliated system, not loosely affiliated, but a, 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 a system where power was dispersed among the 12 regional banks and the 12 regional bank presidents would come to Washington, D.C. and have meetings and set policy. And they were overseen by a board of governors, okay? That's like the, the bosses in D.C., the administrative committee that runs the Fed is called the Board of Governors in D.C. Slowly but surely, what you see over the decades really accelerated in 1935 through a uh, kind of a overhaul of the Federal Reserve Act. You saw power become increasingly centralized at that office in Washington, D.C., where the Federal Reserve Board of Governors uh, exists and, and operates. They get more and more power over the years. And, and something I think we'll talk about is that there's a key committee that sets policy at the Fed. It's called the Federal Open Markets Committee or the FOMC. When you hear the news that you know the Fed got together and raised interest rates today, it's the FOMC that makes that decision. But critically, the FOMC is, is dominated by that Fed Board of Governors I just mentioned, okay? So you've got this group in D.C. that really sets policy for the Fed. And over the decades, they've gotten more and more power to set policy. And at the same time, they've, they've made the policy further and further insulated from the public sphere. Th this was one of the biggest legacies of the most famous chairman of the Fed ever, Alan Greenspan. He invented this thing called FedSpeak. And the whole idea was is that he'd go in front of Congress and use language that was intentionally so opaque and so overly complicated that he seemed like this all-knowing wizard. And, and it made the politics of the Fed seem absolutely inaccessible. So you see a concentration of power at the same time being simultaneously cocooned within this very thick wall of economics jargon. Hmm. And, you know, that leads us up to 2010 when the Fed is making these sweeping decisions under the aegis of, of terms like quantitative easing and swap lines that make no sense to people. And that's how it's transforming our economy without people really even understand what's going on. So I actually I want to get back to that in a little bit, because this is a point yeah. right before we came on air. I made this point to Crystal about they use terminology like quantitative easing to make normal people have their eyes roll back in their head. But the fact of the matter is we're effectively talking about corporate bailouts <laughs> like that's that's what it is. You know, you keep pumping money into these corporations. I'm recently the Fed, of course, um, decided to start buying corporate debt, which was very it's a new thing. And 
it's a step above and beyond even what they did in 2008 or 2010. But I want to come back to that and just a quick, broad question. I've seen very intelligent people who I respect describe the Fed as public. I've seen very intelligent people who I respect describe it as private. And I've seen people describe it as a weird public-private hybrid. So what actually is the Fed? And then also, what makes sense in terms of the Fed's independence? Because I've heard that term thrown around. To me, that just uh, that's another way of saying, well, it's undemocratic. So do you think the Fed should be more democratic or is its independence a good thing? And how would you categorize it, public, private or a hybrid? <laughs> yeah, thanks for starting off with the softball questions. I mean, this <laughs> is like this is like the most fundamental question at the at the heart of the whole book, to be to be honest. Uh, unfortunately, everybody you talk to is correct. Mm. The Fed is a, a bizarre institution. It is it's like a genetically engineered hybrid that's got some DNA of the government, some DNA of private industry, some DNA from the banking system, all mixed together. It's it's a private bank that is owned by other banks who have like non-transferable stock. But it's run by people who are appointed by the United States president and confirmed by the United States Senate. So there is this this sort of small node of democratic accountability at the Fed in, in terms of, you know, the chairman, the current chairman, Jay Powell, was uh, appointed by I'm sorry, he was nominated by President Trump and he'll be he was you know renominated by Joe Biden. He'll be uh, in front of the Senate next week. But then once he has the job, which he almost certainly will get reappointed, he can act uh, free from constraint uh, of, of lawmakers or any democratic institution. And, and the reason this was done is really interesting. This was the Fed was created in a way that intentionally insulated it from democratic influence and power. And the idea was that the power the Fed had was simply too powerful to give to politicians. I mean, there's a terrible incentive for governments to simply print money rather than do, you know, politically uncomfortable things like raise taxes or cut spending. And, and you can see this uh, again and again in countries around the world that when politicians who are under a lot of pressure with short-term incentives, when they get a hold of the money printing power, they can misuse it, okay? They, they can overprint. So the idea was, let's insulate the Fed. So you can have these people making rather high-minded decisions. They can do the politically hard thing, and they won't be accountable to voters. And it's a whole theory of government that creates the sort of independent institution. And I think there's a good case to be made for that. I mean, in the New Deal era in the 30s, you saw a lot of, uh, you know, what people derisively refer to today as deep state institutions get created. The the Federal Trade Commission, the Environmental Protection Agency, which came later, these, these kind of independent uh, institutions that are free from democratic power. Now, the, the problem is, is that, of course, they can have a lot of runway to make a lot of mistakes before there's any sort of public accountability. And I think one of the underlying themes of the book is that 
in in this era of democratic decline, which I really think we're in in America right now, our government institutions are dysfunctional. Uh, there's uh, terrible, like kind of across the board corruption, special interests. We have seen a paralysis of democratic institutions, and we're relying on these non-democratic institutions to get the job done, whether mm. it's the Supreme Court to mediate our policy disputes, the military to handle foreign affairs, or in the economic realm, we rely on the non-democratic Federal Reserve to drive economic growth. And I think that the, the track record of the last decade is absolutely clear that the Fed is an awful tool to use <laughs> as the primary engine of economic growth. Because it can't build bridges, it can't educate people, it can't put a shovel in somebody's hand. The Fed can only print money on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And it has it has used that power to a degree that literally breaks the graph of history. And we kind of can now look at the results of that and see that, wow, you know, we need to learn how to do fiscal action again. We need to learn how to legislate again because uh, the Fed alone cannot drive this economy. So you have a sort of perfect storm of an institution that only has weak sort of public oversight and accountability to start with. Then you have an sort of intentional obfuscation, you know, making it seem overly complex, like, ah, oh, just let us mathematicians and economists and these elites who are experts in this field handle it. Um, the media basically goes along with that and doesn't cover much of what the Fed is up to or certainly not very aggressively or not in a way that the public finds compelling or understandable unless you're in sort of niche um, business journalist world. And they set about claiming a lot of power and taking extraordinary actions. So stage is set for where we find ourselves in ma massive financial freefall. Uh, what does the Fed do in response that was extraordinary vis-a-vis -vis their history? Yeah. And and so the, the book opens on November 3rd, 2010, which I consider to be a real hinge point in American economic history. And, you know, we can get into this, but when you really look at the history, the Fed, um, when it prints money, it stokes asset prices. Okay, there's this whole theory of too few dollar, uh, too many dollars chasing too few goods, which drives up the price. So the Fed pumped up the asset bubble of the dot com crash, and then it pumped up the bubble of the it pumped up the bubble of in the housing market during the 2000s, which created a massive financial crisis. So in 2010. Our economy is in the shadow of the financial crisis, which the Fed was largely responsible for creating. We talk about the greedy bankers, and, and there's a ton of evidence for that, I mean, for sure. But who set the table? Who created the financial conditions that created the countrywide mortgage boom? Uh, it was the Federal Reserve, which kept money very, very cheap for years and years and years, kept interest rates really low, which stoked that asset boom. So in 2010, our economy was in terrible shape because when you have a banking crisis, uh, the repercussions last for years. And that's exactly where we were. But in, in 2010, our economy was slowly limping out of this wreckage. There was an economic recovery underway, but there were so many lost jobs that had to be recreated and so much debt was being paid, pay, being paid down that we had really anemic economic growth. And that's the environment of, of November 3rd, 2010, 
when we had the first midterm election of Barack Obama's presidency and the Tea Party sweeps into power and effectively shuts down Congress. Um, you know, agree or disagree, we can all, I think, acknowledge that the Tea Party's agenda was to stop fiscal action and stop government action. And they were quite effective in that front. And, and at that very time, the Federal Reserve uh, departs from its history on November 3rd, 2010. The chairman, Ben Bernanke, says, OK, we have gone to the limits of our power at this point. The Fed is best known for stimulating growth through interest rates, okay? It sets the price of short-term loans, and it had pushed the price down to zero, and you can't go lower than zero, or so it was thought. And there was this big debate inside the Fed of, well, what do we do now? We've pushed interest rates to zero. That's crazy, by the way. Interest rates have brushed up against zero before, but they haven't stayed there for very long. And Ben Bernanke was pushing a policy to pin the interest rate at zero, which was pretty radical, and then at the same time, start pumping money into the Wall Street banking system. And this is the program called quantitative easing. In, in essence, that is a boring, complicated name for a very simple idea, which is that you're going to, quote, buy assets from this group of specially selected banks on Wall Street. Okay, they're called primary dealers. It's, it's a group of 24 banks it's probably the most exclusive financial club in the world. These primary dealers can do business directly with the Fed. And the Fed said, OK, we're going to buy assets from these banks using money that we're just going to create out of thin air. And we're going to create $600 billion worth of money in a, in a few months to pump that cash into Wall Street in the hopes that they stimulate economic growth. OK, this had never been done. And the key thing here is that the Fed isn't trying to be the lender of last resort in a crisis, as it was built to do. In this case, the Fed is saying, we are going to be the primary engine of economic development now. We are going to try to stimulate growth because the democratic institutions have put themselves on the sidelines. And that was the birth of an historic era of 0% interest rates and simultaneous money printing. And, and the headline I'd like to put on this is that in the first century of its existence, the Fed printed about $900 billion. And what I'm talking about here is the so-called monetary base, which is the supply of brand new fresh Fed dollars that only the Fed can create. It's like a pool of, of dollars. The Fed expanded that pool to $900 billion over a century. And then in about four years, the Fed expands that pool by $3.5 hmm. 350 years worth of money printing in about four and a half years. And, and, and that sets us into a whole new era of hyper-financialization, overheated speculation on Wall Street, massive increase in debt, and, and this easy money era that has wildly inflated asset prices while doing very little for the working class. Mm. So uh, there's a bunch I could say in response to that. Uh, for one thing, this is a form of trickle-down economics because they're giving the money to Wall Street in the hopes, maybe they have the hopes, maybe they don't care, that it will trickle down to regular folks. Um, is, it, is there an argument to make that since under our Constitution, Congress has what's called the power of the purse, which is the power to spend the money, isn't there an argument to make that these actions, these particular actions of the Fed, so quantitative easing, 
the corporate bailouts, that that's unconstitutional. Um, again, with the big question. So I, I'd like to break that into two pieces, please. Now, the constitutional authority of the Fed comes from the fact that Congress created it. There's nothing in the United States Constitution that specifically calls for or authorizes the Federal Reserve. It's the fact that Congress created it, the president signed the bill in 1913, then overhauled it in 1935. So that's where the Fed gets the authority to do what it does. And this gets a, a, a little complicated, but we really need to remember that there are two kinds of economic policy in the United States. You've got your fiscal policy, which is the stuff controlled by Congress and the White House. Fiscal policy is taxing and spending. And so think about Congress. Think about the United States Department of Treasury. Uh, these entities tax and spend. But then there's this other sphere of policy that's called monetary policy, and that's just the creation of the currency. And, and only the Federal Reserve can, can do that and create new dollars. And as we've discussed, the Fed has really broad authority to manage currency, to create or shrink the money supply. You know, Congress has given that authority to the Fed. So in that way, um, you know, I think it, it, it is constitutional. You know, Congress gave the Fed the authority to do that. But I think you made also an extremely important point um, that this is, I don't call it just trickle-down economics. I call it hyper-trickle-down economics. And, you know, one of the luxuries I have as an author, as opposed to like a daily reporter who's covering the Fed, is I can really go back and read through the meeting transcripts of, of the decisions as they were made. And I can go back and interview the people who made the decisions. And the historical record is absolutely clear that, that when Ben Bernanke and the, the FOMC passed quantitative easing and did multiple rounds worth trillions of dollars of quantitative easing, they knew that the way it would, well, first of all, they knew that it was a risk and that it was a gamble and that it would only indirectly create jobs, but that the only way it could create jobs was by stoking up the price of assets on Wall Street. And when we talk about assets, we're talking about the stock market. Ben Bernanke in black and white is saying, yeah, we're going to pump up the stock market through this program. And then the other kind of asset would be corporate debt, leveraged loans, the private equity industry that packages and sells private loans gets supercharged by a program like quantitative easing. So the Fed knew that it's going to try to affect economic growth by wildly inflating asset prices and pumping up asset prices first. And it's just inarguable that 1% of Americans own roughly 40% of all the assets in the country. The bottom half of Americans own about 7% of the assets. So when you're pursuing a policy that tries to stimulate growth by pumping up asset prices, you are, like by definition, increasing the already very wide gap between the very rich and everybody else. And, and that's exactly what the legacy of quantitative easing and 0% interest rate has been. It, it has been a critical driver widening the gap between the rich, not, not just the rich and the poor, but like the top 1% and the top 10% from everybody else. So to play devil's advocate, um, yeah. perhaps what Bernanke and 
everybody else who voted for this except for the one dissenter who you profile in your book, um, who we'll get into in a moment. But probably what they would say is, look, the economy was in free fall. Um, We were in total crisis. Congress is not doing anything. It fell to us to use the tools and the powers that we have at our disposal. And yeah, it's ultimately might be hyper trickle down, but this is all that we have available to us. And if the the bottom completely, you know, continues to fall out of the economy, millions of people are going to be hurt. They're going to lose their jobs. Even more people are going to lose their, their houses and their livelihoods and all of those things. So, yeah, it was extraordinary actions, but it was also an extraordinary time and it was the best that we could do. But that happened anyway. Sorry to cut you off, Chris. <laughs> I had to say those oh, words. Gosh. That stuff happened anyway. It's just that the people who were largely responsible for the crisis in the first place got to run out the back door with more money. All right. Well, I'm just playing devil's <laughs> advocate here. Let's hear what Chris has to say. Um, and, and you know, th- thank you for doing that. And and honestly, if if we could rewind a little bit, I, I really started reporting this book back in, in 2016 when I realized how dramatic the effect of what the Fed had done was and, and how much it had changed the economy. And and total honesty, when I started this book, I, I wanted to write a book that was kind of just like uh, Moneyball. You know, one of my great role models is, is the great business reporter, Michael Lewis. And I, I just wanted to explain what the Fed is and, and what it's done. And I wanted to kind of write like the Moneyball of quantitative easing. And I felt a great deal of sympathy for the devil's advocate argument you just gave, which was, hey, you know, I wouldn't want to sit in the seat of the Fed chairman. Uh, I wouldn't want that job. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I was, uh, you know, uh, an employee at the Associated Press barely hanging on to the very bottom of like job security during that time and was acutely aware of how bad the economy was in 08, 09. I mean, it was a nightmare. And when I started this book, I, 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 I thought this is just kind of an explainer book. But I've got to tell you, through, through the course of reporting it, you know, the subtitle went from how quantitative easing changed the world to how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy. And, and I came down to a very, very different point of view that is based on the evidence. And, you know, to me, a real turning point was looking at the Fed's decision in 2012 to triple down on this plan of quantitative easing. And and, and to me, the critical evidence is when you look at, at what these people were saying inside the Fed policy meetings. Okay. They keep transcripts of these meetings, but they don't release the transcripts for a delay of five years. And then they'll release a whole year's worth at once. So you've got like, you know, thousands of pages of just hyper dense text, and it might get one or two little quick stories in in the financial press and that's it. But when, when you look at what they were saying, you realize that the Fed knew they were building up massive risks in the economic system and that their policy was going to benefit the rich at, at a huge degree, not just over the working class, but it was going to benefit the rich in a way that punished people who earned a paycheck. And it was going to punish them by taking away the amount of money they could earn by saving their their earnings. And at the same time, you know, we'll get to what Kyle keeps mentioning, which is that this system creates periodic financial crashes, which then get bailed out by the taxpayer. We're sort of like that community in Iowa that's seen 200-year floods in eight years. You know, Mm -hmm. we had 08, 09, 
2020, we had a financial crisis that was worse than 08, and the Fed responded by stepping in and printing 300 years worth of money in about three months. And as Kyle said, uh, stepping in to directly buy corporate debt. And, and, and to me, the history left me with an impression that there was actually a very large degree of, of recklessness and disregard displayed by the leadership at the Fed. And it comes in the form of knowing that their policy was going to hyper-subsidize the biggest of the big banks, the private equity industry that is really just a debt debt laundering operation. You know, you borrow money, you load it onto a company, you buy, you strip down the company to pay off the debt, and then you sell it. Uh, it this policy also subsidized and benefited hedge funds. And the gains for, for working people were tiny. And the Fed knew at the time they were tiny. And you can see in the debates that even people like current Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell said in black and white, we are getting a tiny benefit in unemployment at the cost of building up these super long-term risks. And so when you see evidence like that, to me, it really undermined this argument that, you know, my goodness, our hands were tied. We were in the trenches. We did our best. Uh, I, I think that they acted in a way that they knew was going to benefit the richest of the rich and the biggest of the big banks. So effectively what we're talking about here is that the actions of the Fed, particularly in modern American history, uh, it it's the old Martin Luther King quote of like, socialism for the wealthy, the corporations, the financial institutions, and rugged individualism for the poor. And then you have this whole issue of moral hazard, which is this idea that like, well, now you just incentivized these people to keep taking more risk and then keep taking more bailouts. If there's no punishment for making terrible decisions, bankrupting their own respective companies, crashing the global economy. You let them know, hey, times are going to be better than ever because we're going to give you free money after that anyway. There's moral hazard. You've now incentivized that action further. So my question is, let's go all the way back to 2008 and we just had the crash. What needs to be done? Is it do the same kind of bailouts, but like have Congress in tandem have very strict rules along with it? So like, okay... We're going to bail you out, but you can't pay out any bonuses. You can't do any stock buybacks. X amount has to go to your workers, so on and so forth. Is that the idea? Is the idea just, hey, no bailouts? Is like the right-wing libertarian idea correct? It's just, hey, no bailouts. If you failed, you failed. Or is it something like the Fed does quantitative easing for the working class? Can the Fed even do quantitative easing for the working class? So answer some of those questions. Yeah, you, you bet. And, you know, one thing I would like to get to is is the decade of the 2010s, which led to one of the largest bailouts in history, which is ongoing today. And it's been really obscured by the chaos of, of COVID and the Trumpism and, and the insurgency and all the rest of it. I'm sorry, the insurrection and all the rest of it. But to go back to what you're talking about, the crash of 0809, you know, what should we have done? What was the alternative to quantitative easing? You know, we have a very instructive previous event in history 
which was the banking crash of 1929 and 1930, which was in many ways identical to the crash of 0809. When you mm. will look at the history, these asset prices were built up. You had the same kind of wild speculation on Wall Street, stock market crash, all the rest of it. The administration of, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Congress reacted to the banking crash of 1929 in a way that put, and I'm sorry to like use this term, which is cliche now, but they put structural reform at the beginning of the agenda. The first thing FDR did when he came into office was to shut down the banks. He called it a bank holiday, but the banks were shut down. And then the federal government created something called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. I might be getting that name a little bit wrong. The correct name is in the book, but there's RFC. They took over banks that had made wild, reckless, speculative loans. They essentially nationalized and broke up those banks. And then they put in structural reforms to break apart the banking system. We all know about the Glass-Steagall Act, which it was like... It was it was like a commandment from the Bible in the sense that it was very simple, very short, and very sweeping in its effect. Glass-Steagall said, okay, we're going to have speculative investment banks over here, and then we're going to have commercial banks that hold people's savings accounts over here, and never the, tween, never the twain shall meet, okay? They're going to be separate. The New Deal era, which really lasted about six or seven years of legislation, it, it did something critically important. It changed the structure of the Wall Street banking system, and it put a leash on Wall Street. It created the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and it broke up the big banks. The administration of Barack Obama and his Treasury Secretary, Timothy Geithner, who was a former president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which is really the key hub bank of the 12 regional banks, they came at it with an entirely different philosophy. And their philosophy was no structural change. No, no. Because I, I, the, the, the theory they stated was that there was already so much chaos. There was sort of this fear to get in and start kind of tampering with the engine, if you will, in the midst of a time when stock markets were crashing, unemployment was rising. And they said, we're going to have this theory of simply uh, recapitalizing the banks that exist, okay? We're not going to break them up. Glass-Steagall is a relic of an older time, and we're going to simply pump money into the system. And the, the results of that are crystal clear. The two big-to-fail banks in 2008 are now bigger and less able to fail. And it's so interesting, the sort of compromises they made. They sort of tried to create a synthetic pretend Glass-Steagall in these things that we call the stress tests uh, and the so-called living wills of the banks, they're like, okay, banks, we're not going to break you up, but you need to prove to us that if we hit a, a massive downturn again, that you can handle it without, you know, needing a bailout. And so the banks, you know, dutifully prepare these reports that are hundreds of pages long and speculate how the banks will survive in case of a downturn. It turns into a huge fight that lasts for years between lawyers as to the numbers and Look, the reality is we avoided doing everything but making fundamental structural change to the banking system. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. All right, so let's get up to the 2010s. Yeah. What does the Fed 
learn from its many rounds of quantitative easing and what did they do going forward and in particular in response to the pandemic? So, you know, first of all, the, the debates about that first round of quantitative easing are fascinating. And as you mentioned earlier, I profiled this really interesting guy who voted against it. Um, he actually voted no on the Fed's key policy committee. This guy voted no, I think, eight times in a row. His name is Thomas Honig, and he was president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank. And at first, I thought he was frankly kind of a crank, uh, you know, that he had been warning about inflation and, and he was wrong and he was, you know, dissenting because he was cantankerous. But that's not true at all. Thomas Honig was making some very persuasive arguments that if they started doing quantitative easing, they were, first of all, going to benefit the rich over the working class. Second of all, they were going to increase a massive upswell in risky financial activity because they're going to pump this money into Wall Street and they were going to basically say there's no way you could earn money by saving any of this cash because interest rates were at zero. So this money was forced out into the economy in any way uh, it, it could find a home. And that it, it, it ended up creating a bonanza of financial uh, machinations like stock buybacks, like mergers and acquisitions, uh, bonuses to CEOs, uh, you know, leveraged loans to buyout firms. All this activity was uh, hyperheated by quantitative easing. And you know, the final argument Tom Honig made was that you're going to help the rich. You're going to increase these asset bubbles and, and risky speculation. And then finally, once you start pumping this money, and you're never going to be able to stop. Because the minute you stop, the markets will react by correcting the asset prices back down because they're not pumped up by this free money anymore. And on all of these points, this guy was exactly right. And the book walks through the era of the 2010s, which I call the, the ZERP era. And that's what the Wall Street people call zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing, ZERP for short. And during the ZERP era, you see stock buybacks hit a record high, and, and stock buybacks are just a financial transaction where you borrow money, you buy stock, and you're basically paying off the tiny group of people who own most of the stock and who earn the you know bonuses in the CEO suite. Used to be uh, illegal see, until Reagan. That's exactly right. Uh, it was a bizarre and um, very infrequently used maneuver, even in the late 80s. Uh, and now it's become standard operating procedure. And Literally, you had people inside meetings in the Fed citing examples of CEOs saying, money is so cheap, like people are going to get mad at me if I don't do a buyback. It doesn't make any sense, but I got to do it. And, and you know, I profile this corporation in the book where the CEO is doing buyback after buyback. He's earning $12 million a year while they are shedding jobs, closing factories and shifting production to Mexico. It's sort of the story of the 2010s. And the Fed also found itself in the position where it is today, which is essentially unable to pull back. So the, the economy that was created by these policies is the economy that we had in December 2019 and early January 2020, when the first cases of coronavirus start to appear, um, you know, China, Italy, United States. And at the time, the you know 
one thing I got to point out, a lot of this book is based on me interviewing the actual Wall Street traders who operate in the world the Fed created, okay? The people at Credit Suisse who are packaging and selling the leveraged loans, the private equity buyout people, the hedge fund people that are trading all this. And, and these people are very unsentimental and pretty honest in how they describe reality, to me at least off the record, you know, when they're not on CNBC. And in late 2019, the markets were what the hedge fund types call priced to perfection, meaning asset values were just sky high and the system was incredibly fragile because the Fed had been pumping up these markets for years. And that is the market that collides with a really unprecedented economic shutdown caused by COVID. And, you know, in March of 2020, we saw a financial crisis, again, that was worse than 2008. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. The, the, the market for United States Treasury bills, the safest market in the history of markets, seized up and, and stopped trading uh, for some Treasury bills. As the Financial Times put it, analysts say this isn't supposed to be able to happen. And, you know, we can look at one tiny element, which would be the market for corporate debt which had been directly fueled by quantitative easing and 0% interest rate. You know, corporate debt goes from $6 trillion in, in 2010 to $11 trillion in, in 2020, a record level. And this corporate debt made companies very indebted and fragile. It made the financial system fragile, and it all began to collapse in 2020. It was the, the fruit of a decade of, of pumping up these financial markets. And the Fed delayed the reckoning. Uh, there was a great front page article in the New York Times in March of 2020 talking about the time bomb that is now exploding in corporate debt markets. And the Fed stepped in. It printed about $3 trillion, 300 years worth of money in a few months. And, and as you said earlier, the Fed expanded its footprint dramatically and said, we are going to directly buy corporate junk debt to stop this reckoning. And, and the Fed went out to the market and bought corporate junk loans and then the securitized form of corporate junk loans called CLOs. And that had a huge change in, in the market in, in terms of what you were talking about with the moral hazard in that now, if I'm on Wall Street selling leveraged loans, I know and the people who buy it know that when things really go south, the Fed's going to buy the debt. We've got a backstop in the Fed. And so that changes the economics of selling these highly risky, in some cases, highly risky loans, and it props up the market. So it's not, it's not just like the corporate debt market was healed in, in 2020. It has now gone on another record-breaking tear and added another trillion dollars. So you see the Fed building the fragility in the financial system, and then when the rubber starts to hit the road as it did in March 2020, just stepping in further and further inflating it and raising and raising the price tag. And again, the problem is when the Fed is pumping this much cash into the banking system as it's doing now, it is sort of a permanent easy money policy that creates these, these long-term risks like inflation that the Fed is having to deal with, but it can't deal with it without essentially causing a market crash. So I have pulled up in front of me here, PBS article. Federal, this is from March 20th of 2020. Federal Reserve to lend additional $1 trillion a day to large banks. 
Um, based off what you just described, I mean, we've socialized not only the big financial institutions in the sense that they can't fail at the last minute, the Fed will always come in and, and prop them up. Um, but now with the Fed getting involved with corporate debt, we've socialized corporations as well, but we're doing that with none of the rules or regulations in place that would help working people. So it's like the worst aspects of socialism and none of the best aspects of it. What happens, given the current state of affairs, which as we've just described is incredibly dire, what happens the next time there's a crash? Because either these guys are out of tricks, you know, interest rates near zero, quantitative easing for everybody, <laughs> um, uh, right? Uh, can it just go on? Can they just keep doing this as far as the eye can see? Or eventually is the jig up and there's going to be a day of reckoning and it's going to be beyond ugly, akin to or worse than the Great Depression? Okay. So... First of all, I, I think it's important to kind of quantify where we are right now in terms of the Fed's footprint in the world. And you can do that by measuring the so-called balance sheet of the Fed. And that's just a nice little marker of how much money the Fed has printed, because when the Fed prints money, it does it by taking assets onto the balance sheet. OK, whatever. The, the balance sheet of the Fed had slowly increased for the first hundred years, and then it jumps from 900 billion to four and a half trillion in the mid 2010s. And that's the easy money, unprecedented policies I talk about in this book. And then during COVID, the balance sheet rises, you know, they had tried to bring it down a little bit, they got it down to about three and a half trillion, and now it's up uh, at roughly $8 trillion. So the Fed is deeply, deeply committed to easy money policies that prop up financial markets. In a way you could say, this isn't dangerous because the Fed can kind of start to unwind what it has done. It can withdraw some of this stimulus. And again, we need to hit the point that this stimulus is a trickle down uh, theory that only benefits working people two or three steps down the chain. And, and the danger it poses is that it it elevates these asset markets that create the crash. So here we are at the end of a decade of doing this. Middle-class wages are still stagnating. They've been rising a little bit, but the gains have been wiped out by inflation. So people are basically earning uh, about or less than they earned in the early 80s, all right? So there's tremendous financial stress on most working families in America. And we've got to deal with the overheated asset bubbles on Wall Street. Now, the Fed could do that. It could draw down that huge balance sheet I just described if it had a nice slow runway of maybe five or six years to do it, to kind of incrementally draw down the cash injections it's doing, to incrementally raise interest rates from zero, which side note, again, interest rates had brushed against zero before. The Fed kept interest rates pinned at zero for seven years during the last decade barely kind of tried to raise them again, failed, pulled them back to zero. So we're basically at a decade of 0% interest rates. And, and, and so the Fed could kind of slowly, incrementally raise those rates. It could slowly withdraw the cash over a period of five or six years, and everything would be calm and orderly. But the problem is the Fed is not going to have that luxury of time. That, this is what really worries me about the inflation we see. 
you know, inflation of of prices like, you know, bread, gasoline, television sets, automobiles, these kind of prices have been rising at the at the fastest rate since the uh, 90s. OK, so like 40, 40 years or so. The, the problem is that inflation can can gain its own steam. It can come, become sort of a self-feeding loop and get out of control. So the Fed has to confront price inflation. It's, it's inarguable. Everybody agrees. And the Fed can only fight this inflation that's growing by raising interest rates or withdrawing some of this cash from Wall Street. And it's going to have to do it much faster than it wants to. So this really brings us to the precipice of that question you're asking. Can we keep doing this forever or are we going to eventually have to pay the bill, uh, face the reckoning, adjust downward some of these asset prices to the actual value of, of the underlying assets? That is a huge question and it's a question that the Wall Street types are wrestling with li literally as we speak. You know, the, the Fed has said, hey, folks, we're going to raise interest rates next year. We're going to withdraw some of this cash. The market prices show that Wall Street doesn't really believe the Fed. They don't think the Fed is actually going to raise rates. And then, you know, new data will come out, like these minutes of a meeting that came out yesterday that make Wall Street think, well, I think actually the Fed might be serious and the markets start to fall. Yeah, that's, I'm sorry to cut you off, Chris, just real no. quick. That's what, that's what Ben Bernanke tried to do in the 2010s they decided to take their foot off the gas pedal slowly of the quantitative easing and the market immediately threw a tantrum. And these guys care more about the market than anything else. So it se seems to me like they're just not going to do it. They're just going to keep going down this path. You know, from the minute they started doing all this stuff, they've been talking about, quote, normalizing. Like there's this realization inside the Fed that you can't have 0% interest rates forever. You can't pump money into Wall Street. Go back and look at the minutes of the meetings. I'm sorry, the actual transcripts of the meetings. They were talking about normalizing and trying to pull back in January 2010. Yeah. They've been talking about it ever since. As you pointed out, every time they've made a concerted effort to try to normalize, they have failed. Uh, you just referenced the so-called taper tantrum of 2013 when all the Fed tried to do was slow down the money pumping of quantitative easing. That's all they tried to do. And the markets reacted very strongly and, and in fact, reacted rationally. The markets say, okay, you're no longer going to be incentivizing these highly risky bets and assets we've been betting on. We're going to start withdrawing. We're going to start putting our money back into safe securities like treasuries and taking them out of risk stops. I'm sorry, risk stocks. So that creates a downward adjustment in the markets, and the Fed, every single time, has has lost its nerve and backed away. And this particularly happened in 2018 and 2019 when Jay Powell was chairman of the Fed. You know, I think one of the most erroneous storylines of the modern Fed is that somehow Chairman Jay Powell would, like was standing up to Donald Trump and fighting for the independence of the Federal Reserve. I mean, in fact, on core monetary questions, Jay Powell did exactly what Donald Trump wanted. Jay Powell actually cut interest rates heading into economic growth in July 2019, which was uh, very unusual for the Fed to do. But more importantly, the real bully isn't Donald Trump. You know, Ben Bernanke and then Janet Yellen and then Jay Powell are not more afraid of the president. They are very afraid 
of wrenching downward adjustments in the asset markets. And in early 2019, we saw such an adjustment start to happen. Uh, it was a pretty scary synchronized downturn in the markets that happened in December 2018. And just a few weeks later in January of 2019, Jay Powell stopped the normalization process, which he had previously promised was on, quote, automatic pilot, was going to happen no matter what. And the Wall Street types called this the Powell pivot of, of 2019. And so Again, here we are in early 2022, and the Fed, you know, I hate to use the analogy, but there's sort of a gun to the head, if you will. Inflation is out of control and very uh, quickly rising, and the Fed has to do something about it. Markets will react, and these overinflated asset markets are going to have to adjust downward. It just doesn't make sense to be in a lot of these markets if interest rates are at 3% or 2.5%. We've seen that repeatedly. So the question is, uh, can the Fed follow through? And also, I, I, I have learned one thing. Don't ever bet against the Fed uh, breaking through boundaries and coming up with new ways to print more money and quadruple and quintuple down on this effort to bolster markets, bail out corporate debt funds, bail out the stock markets. Um, you know, they could have another massive bailout this year, for example. It could happen and it could delay the reckoning another, I don't know, one, two, five, ten years. But again, the reality that concerns me most of all is what this means in the real life economy of America, where our middle class is stagnating and the wealth among the very small group of people who own assets is simply exploding. Spell that out for us, because what it seems like you're describing is a Fed policy that had minimal to no benefit or potentially was ultimately damaging to working class people, but the unwinding of which could do profound harm to working class, middle class people. So what does it look like when ultimately, you know, eventually, whether it's now or in the future, the rubber hits the road, the debt has to be paid, and the Fed tries to unwind what they've been doing. I mean, okay, it's it's not good. And so, first of all, to back up, you know, the um, the leftist progressives at McKinsey uh, did a study of quantitative easing in 2012 and found that quantitative easing had directly subsidized the corporate debt markets to the tune of about $300 billion. At the same time, quantitative easing had simultaneously punished households that were trying to save money to the tune of $360 billion. Hmm. Because, you know, for folks trying to get by on a pension or a savings account or, you know, life insurance where money is essentially saved, they face a huge punishment because there's simply no upside in saving anymore, while the debt merchants on Wall Street and the kind of debt engineers at private equity firms get an enormous, enormous subsidy from this. So this is a decade of the middle class. And I mean, it just sounds like a cliche, but like all the numbers say this. Wages are stagnating. If you're making an earning these days, through a paycheck rather than by owning assets, unfortunately, you're falling behind, you know, uh, particularly now with inflation running so hot. So we have a decade of lost 
advancement for the middle class. And then we have another reckoning, another financial bubble that could potentially collapse uh, in, in almost an identical fashion to what was starting to happen in 2020, to what did happen in 2008, uh, to what did happen uh, in 1999 with the dot-com bubble. And the, the, the fallout from these financial crashes, which are stoked by the Fed, the fallout is just tremendous for working people because um, it's, it's not just the taxpayer money that has to be funneled in to bail out the banking system time and again. It's the long hangover, the long hangover that actually Ben Bernanke has done a lot of uh, uh, original research on. He calls it the debt overhang, which means after a financial bubble collapses, you have years of weak growth as debt is paid down and as you kind of emerge from the debt-driven crisis. So um, there, there is absolutely no positive argument to be made in my mind, for lancing this bubble, what I mean to say is, if interest rates rise, if quantitative easing is withdrawn and the markets downwardly adjust, it will be a bad thing. Uh, it is not something that that people should be eager to see or or joyful about because it's really going to hurt a lot of people's finances. And that, to me, as a business reporter, having covered this economy since you know, well, a long time, but I mean, definitely since 2008, it's just like households can't withstand a, another five years of, of weak growth. So there's there's no uh, joy to be taken in the devastating impacts of a correction if it happens. And And I think that this is just another reason, you know, this is why I wanted to kind of go back and study how did this happen how did we get here? What are the mechanics that got us to this point? So we can at least look at it rationally as it starts to happen. You know, I hate to say this, but based on the conversation and everything that we've learned about the Fed, it almost strikes me that, to your point, going all the way back to, you know, the, the genesis of all this stuff, it's almost like any other situation would have been better. Namely, if we never created the Fed, certainly in its current iteration, or if we went even further. And instead of having a central bank, just nationalize all the banks. Am I wrong in that? Well, okay. Um, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our banking system is overripe for massive structural reform. There's simply no doubt about that. Um, the Federal Reserve, as it was built, I think... Uh, appeals to me in the sense that it was an unhappy compromise, which I think tends to be some of the best policy. It was a decentralized system that had some democratic control. And, and okay, when you were asking me that question, I don't want to overstate this analogy, but it really reminds me of the war we just lost in Afghanistan. The, the parallels are, are very similar in the sense that you had senior military leadership constantly downplaying the negatives, constantly upplaying the short-term gains. And with the Federal Reserve, you have leadership that is constantly misleading the public, to be honest, about the risks the Fed is creating, about the downsides of what the Fed is doing, and, and also critically, 
about the litany of major mistakes the Fed has made over the last decade. There's a remarkable study I put in the book where the Fed forecast what was going to happen with quantitative easing uh, internally, and it was just wrong on every major count in 2012. It's just incredible. But to, to go with the military analogy, you're sort of like, well, what is the answer here? Should we not have a Fed? Should we nationalize the banking system? You know, the military, I think there's a growing idea that some restraint and wisdom should have been shown back in late 2002, and we could have negotiated with the Taliban, for example. In the same way, there's this sort of uncomfortable, like, it, it's it's hard to really get behind this campaign platform of humility and restraint and wisdom. But in fact, in, in 2010, if the Fed had simply restrained itself and not broken the boundaries of its job and not engaged in these unprecedented experiments that the Fed knew was going to benefit the big banks over everybody else, if it had not done quantitative easing, then we would be in a much better position than we are today. And, you know, it's such a thorny, complicated issue. I'm not one to advocate simply throwing away the Federal Reserve, because again, it's hard to operate a complex modern capitalist society without having a central bank to create and manage currency. The, the fundamental pathology of the last decade is that our democratic institutions are dysfunctional and paralyzed, and countries around the world have been relying on the central banks to print money to boost growth, which would be great if it worked. It would be so great if it worked, but history shows us time and again that it simply doesn't work. You know, you can't boost growth that way. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that where we're probably headed is, you know, people have been sort of snowed by this idea, like, oh, they're, you know, Jay Powell and Bernanke and Yellen and all these folks. They're geniuses. They've got it. <laughs> they understand it. We'll just let them do their thing. We'll kind of, you know, stay content with whatever CNN's telling us we should actually care about. And when there is a reckoning and a massive crash, suddenly the public's mind will be focused on it. Uh, in the same way that we all learned a lot about what was going on in Wall Street during the last financial collapse. And it seems like the only answer to this problem, which is interconnected, as you're pointing out, with the total dysfunction of, of Congress and our other democratic institutions, is to have sort of more democracy involved, to make monetary policy back a center of conversation among ordinary people where they feel empowered to have an opinion and to press politicians and public officials to make change because ultimately there's in a democracy there's no substitute for the people being engaged and holding power to account um i mean what do you think of that number one and then i also was curious just very specifically we've talked a lot about inflation how much of the inflation that we're experiencing do you think comes from the actions of the fed um so to your to your to your previous point you know i i agree with you entirely and you know to me the real difficulty is then you've got to turn around and you're facing a whole host of of major difficult issues that have to be tackled. You know, my previous book was about uh, Coke Industries, this very large corporation. And I talked a lot about, for example, the decimation of labor unions in the United States, which has not just had the effect of removing 
the power of workers to bargain for more money and to be a countervailing force against the power of the owners of capital. I mean, labor unions were really important, but labor unions also gave a way for normal, ordinary people to have uh, a political connection, a political outlet. It just can't be overstated uh, that there was a way to vote, a way to feel like you were engaged in economic affairs beyond voting for president every four years, you know, you would vote for your union leader and uh, the union would engage you with local politics. That has been wiped out and wiped away. And it, it's it's fundamental issues like that that we're going to have to start dealing with uh, to start to really restore democratic power in the United States, which is, you know, probably the struggle of, of our time right now. Yeah. And And yeah, so unfortunately, there's no real easy solution to it. But the thing I can say in 100% confidence is, yeah, we can't rely on the Fed to drive growth. I think, you know, you can probably predict that's my conclusion at this point. But so to, to the question you asked about inflation, it's so interesting. There's no doubt in the world that the Fed has played a huge role in driving up price inflation. But it's it you know it's also a function of this wild, unprecedented, radical time we live in, uh, of the global economic shutdown due to COVID. You know this this issue of the snarled supply chain is very very real. Uh, we've never been through anything like this. We've never stopped and started uh, huge supply chains like this. And plus the growing tension with China, this is all real. That's the supply side driving up prices. And then you have to look at the demand side, okay? Demand has been stoked by the Federal Reserve printing more money, by the federal government putting more money in people's hands uh, due to emergency measures that really needed to be taken, of course, during the downturn. But it, it th there's, there's no doubt that the Fed has been feeding into this and, and creating inflation. And... To me, one of the biggest problems is, one of the biggest worries is what is inflation going to trigger, you know, in, in terms of the Fed being forced to raise rates and withdraw uh, quantitative easing. But in, this brings me to a point of something you said, which is really important, which is that Bernanke, Yellen, Powell, they really do present themselves as these Olympian figures who are speaking this PhD economist language that us peasants cannot understand and, you know, they've got everything under control. And it is shocking how wrong they have been over the years. And inflation is a perfect example. I talked about that study, the internal study the Fed did about what would happen if it did another a round of quantitative easing in 2012. One of the biggest mistakes the Fed made was forecasting what inflation was going to be. Interestingly, the Fed has been wrong about inflation for a decade on the downside, the Fed has consistently thought we were going to have higher inflation than we saw, but we never had significant price inflation over the last decade, which was a huge economic mystery. And it was important because price inflation was sort of the one break on the Fed's easy money policies. Everybody agreed that if, if price inflation reared its head, the Fed would have to pull back. That never happened. So the Fed felt leeway to keep pumping and pumping new money in. And, you know, the, the real unspoken reality here is that the Fed really had no idea why inflation never rose. I, I think one of the, the best explanations that they've wrestled with was that the Fed was printing money at the very moment 
that this sort of global supply chain, global system was was implementing a lot of deflationary forces, right? Mm. Cheap labor, cheap products. It was holding the price down as the Fed was pumping money into Wall Street. And the reason that seems like a key reason is that now that the supply chain is disrupted, we're seeing prices yeah. uh, shoot through the roof. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. I mean, and yeah. Professor Richard Wolf likes to say, oh, we have inflation, but it's in the stock market and assets and not in consumer goods. You know, now so we got it in consumer goods. And now we got it in consumer too. goods mm-hmm. more. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So last question I have for you, which may be a whole other can of worms, but I just have to ask your opinion. What are your thoughts on cryptocurrencies? Um, I don't know look, why you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Everybody's going to open up the gates of hell on us for even talking about it. <laughs> I worked for so long on this book about the Fed, and probably the only thing anybody will ever talk about is what I'm about to say about crypto. And like that'll, I don't know. It's it's. No, it'll be the hook to get them to watch the rest of the interview. That's what it'll be. Um. So I've spent most of my energy and time writing about government money and the United States dollar, which I would argue is still really important and and is the dominant driving important currency that we we should be debating about crypto is such an interesting technological development that has happened. Um, But actual cryptocurrency is so different from hashtag crypto in in the sense that you've got, in in my mind, Bitcoin and whatever else these other things are, Dogecoin and all the rest of it, it's just another hyper-fueled asset market whose price has no relationship to the underlying value. It's an enormous bubble. It's wildly volatile. It is only running up because people think it's going to run up, so they pour money into it that makes it run up, which makes more people think it's going to run up, so they pour more money into it. You see a similar thing happening uh, with commercial real estate bonds, with leveraged loans, with stock markets. The inflation in these assets is enormous because the Fed has reduced the ability to save money while pumping all this cash into Wall Street. And the cash has got to find somewhere to go. So it has pumped up cryptocurrency to a huge level that is just totally unsupported by the value. And then there's this, you know, the the crypto world is a four in one to me. Okay, full acknowledgement. I'm bad at Twitter. I don't do that stuff. I don't understand it. I don't talk about cryptocurrency. And there's this idea, I think, this philosophy that it's going to be this replacement to the dollar or this this thing that's like democratic money. And I just don't comprehend that at all. You know, as I said earlier, we had this period in U.S. history where we had thousands of currencies. It was called the free money era. It's in the book. It was a total disaster. It's a recipe for instability. Uh, there's a reason we created a national currency. And there's a reason we created it uh, at least loosely under government control. And so... You know, I don't see the instant appeal of this idea to like, let's go back to uh, a, a, a multitude of like currencies competing in a, in a marketplace. It doesn't seem like a recipe for stability. But again, this market is fueled by what the Fed is doing. And you've got all these people in the world of crypto who can point to the Fed and say, how, how can you possibly say I should have faith in this fiat currency that a group of 12 voting members on the Fed's policy committee, the FOMC, can just uh, pump out or diminish seemingly arbitrarily at, at will, right? It, it bolsters the case that you could have 
sound money that is determined by apparently by like an algorithm or code, right? That it can only increase so much as you solve these puzzles or whatever. But I just haven't looked into it that deeply at all because I'm, you know, still rather preoccupied with the government money of the United States, which is also the world's global reserve currency. Uh, so I think it's important to pay attention to it. I, I think it's safe to say that part of the appeal of the rise of crypto is what you just said, which is the total and utter implosion of any semblance of faith in our current institutions. Mm -hmm. So on an intuitive level, I sort of see where the crypto folks are coming from. Uh, also on an intuitive level, I do not see where the NFT folks are coming from. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we won't ask you about that one. Yeah, we won't ask you about NFTs. That's, that's opening up a whole nother can of worms. Let me just say, Chris, I think you've done a tremendous uh, service by helping to demystify the Fed because ultimately... As we were saying, there, there's no substitute for the public understanding this, for them being engaged, for them realizing that the elites who are supposedly genius and, and you know, they got this. They definitely don't got this. They are, you know, have been consistently wrong right. in many critical and absolutely devastating ways. So I think by laying it out and guys, I'm reading the book. It's incredibly readable. It's incredibly compelling. It's, you know, very very easy to understand the narratives of what's going on here. So thank you for doing the hard work of digging into this history, laying it out in a way that takes the mystery away from it, because ultimately, I think that's the most important thing you could do right now. Everybody get the book. You won't regret it. Yeah. Lords of Easy Money. Lords of Easy Money. And uh, I read Cokeland as well, which was also great, which we got to talk about um, back when I was at the Hill. I have not read The Meat Racket, but I want to read that one now, too. I, you know, <laughs> I, 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 have been so great. I think it's a little weird that you also decided to write a softcore porn book named <laughs> yeah. The Meat Racket. The Meat Racket. <laughs> that, that uh, it doesn't fit with your phase. normal character, so it's just weird. It was in my early phase. Um, yeah. <laughs> if I could, I really do think... Um, a reporter's job should be to try to map out systems of power and the workings of government and private industry and just lay it out in English for people and tell the stories behind it in an easy way. My In my mind's eye, I always see a really busy reader on a trip. who I want them to be able to read this at a hotel at night because we need to do a much better job of, of communicating to people what's going on. Uh, with the best available evidence. And uh, geez, it's, you know, feels like a smaller and smaller portion of the media these days. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, I really appreciate you saying that and talking about quantitative easing, which doesn't seem like a, a no brainer to talk about. So thank you. Yeah, but absolutely critical. And, you know, as you said, sort of helps explain everything that's going on in the economy right now, which can seem very mysterious and, and strange and um most of the press not doing a good job of helping us actually understand that. So thank you. You've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. So that was Christopher Leonard. Um, really interesting stuff. I did, uh, you know, a little bit of a deep dive on the Fed before talking to him because it is true. It is one of those, um, one of those things in politics and economics that's almost like on the back burner that even people who are political junkies might not know the most about. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the more I learned about it, um, the more interested I was and the more questions there were. Like, you know, the question I asked him about, um, well, is it is it public? Is it private? Is it a hybrid of public and private? 
Um, I think the genesis of it, it sh everybody should have been skeptical of the genesis of it. I mean, I get why you needed uh, to backstop the economy when you had these panics and these runs on the banks every 10 years or whatever it was. But well, and now it's not workable to have a thousand different currencies. Of course, that, but yeah. to have JP Morgan as if he's doing this because he's what, altruistic? Oh, let me look out for the American people by creating a central bank and getting 11 asshole bankers in the same room and we'll figure out a way to handle this. It's like, I'm very skeptical of that. That history is very interesting because it was a populist movement to create a central bank. But Popul Jackson was populist and he was against it. Too. Populist movement. But when it, uh, when the 1913, when that actually happens, it's a populist movement from farmers to create a central bank so that they have this stability and they know whatever currency they're using is going to be good wherever they go, which you can understand why people would be motivated to want that. And then it seems like once it becomes inevitable that this is the direction things are going in, then the bankers swoop in and it's like, all right, well. How do we control this process? And so then you end up with, you know, basically the structure and the situation that we have now. And I also think it's a very consistent theme that you see a lot from anti-populists who are really um, ascendant in our politics in a lot of ways. And obviously Ch Thomas Frank's book, The People Know, tracks the history of anti-populism, of people trying to convince the public that you don't worry your pretty little heads about this. We've got it. You're too uneducated to understand the workings of whether it's the Fed or whether it's Wall Street or whether it's any government agency, et cetera. You let us elites, credentialed experts handle these things and, and you just you know don't need to worry yourself about it. And ultimately, that's how you end up with this place with a, a handful of elites who are you cannot possibly overstate how much impact the Fed has on our overall economy. And yet, in terms of if you watch cable news, if you read the New York Times, I mean, if you read general political journalism, you really have no idea, no sense of how truly central it is to what's going on right now for our finances. I actually think the way we do it is the worst of all worlds right now. I really do. Because so you have this central bank which views its task as narrow. So the tasks are, well, okay, there's an economic downturn. We're going to keep interest rates low. But then they start doing this thing, quantitative easing, which is just bailing out big financial institutions. They expanded that in the pandemic from just banks and financial institutions now to just corporations. So think about it. Whenever a bank, a financial institution, or a corporation, they run into trouble, they have massive debt, they're going belly up. They have a safety net, the likes of which no average American has. <laughs> and they just swoop in, save the day. And it, like we were talking about moral hazard, that means that you've now incentivized them. Why would they care to even they have, have no a risk. functioning business model? Yeah. When, yeah, they could take whatever sort of crazy casino capitalist bets for the financial institutions that they want, knowing that no matter what, Daddy Fed is going to come in at the last minute and save me. And so I say it's the worst of all worlds because apparently the mechanisms of this thing, they only have the authority to do sort of bailouts from the top down and they don't have the authority to, you know, John Stewart said it all the time during the, the original 2008 crash. Why didn't you bail out the homeowners? 
Why didn't you say, hey, we're going to wipe your uh, debt slate clean for your mortgage or we're going to find a way to do a bottom up bailout, not yeah. a top down bailout because it never actually trickles down. He actually, I would recommend to people, he did an interview on the podcast version of his new show with Janet Yellen. And schooled her. Where he's pushing her on exactly these exactly these points. Well, instead of putting a bunch of money with the banks, like, why don't we have a mechanism to do this for average people? And I think, you know, anyone who tells you is that's, they, they'd say, oh, well, that's a silly question. It just doesn't work that way. But that's all to sort of just laugh you out of the room when in reality, it's obviously insane that there's this automatic multi-trillion dollar backstop for the people at the top and everybody else is just left hose. They've socialized the corporations. That's what it is privatize the profits, socialize the losses. Mm -hmm. That's what they've done. Yeah. And then everybody else is screwed and it's rugged individuals and for everybody else. And she had the nerve to say to Jon Stewart to his face, this we have this is the free market. We have a free market system. Right. He was like, that's not a free market. A free market is what Ron Paul says, where he says, I don't care what industry you're in, if you fail, you fail. Whether you're a bank, whether you're a big financial institution, whether you're uh, you know, some giant multinational corporation. Yeah. If you go belly up, a free market is you go belly up. You don't have the Fed rush in and save you. There At was least a he's lot of on that. There was a lot of sort of patronizing of John, like, oh, you really don't get it. Jamie Dimon, when he interviewed him, was even worse of like, well, you just you just don't understand. This is all very complicated. To your you point, don't understand. The lingo is confusing on purpose. Uh-huh. When you say yeah. the words, oh, uh, oh, the Fed is doing quantitative easing, people go, hmm, yeah, it's quantitative easing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, and he talks about how Greenspan, that was intentional. I mean, this was the whole right. Fed speak of Alan Greenspan, that this was an intentional um, effort to obfuscate, to obfuscate and it's make just people corporate feel bailouts. like, I don't, I don't understand this. So I'm just going to let them just let them and handle it's, it. It's actually worse than bailouts, too, because they could just print the money and bail them out. They don't even doesn't even need to be counterbalanced with raising taxes on the wealthy or whatever. The whole book is an explanation of that phenomenon that we were all scratching our heads at um, during the pandemic, where you had total freefall for American families, right? Massive job loss, massive record-breaking numbers of people on unemployment, all of this, you know, just chaos in the real economy and Wall Street reaching record highs. Split screen, happening at the same time. This book, if you want to understand what was happening there, this, this book explains that phenomenon. Okay, if you were going to do bailouts, whether it's for the pandemic or whether it was during the 08 crash, if you were going to do bailouts, you had no choice but to put stringent rules and regulations along with it. So the Fed had to act in tandem with Congress and Congress had to say mm-hmm. and the executive branch, President Obama, had to say, all right, you're, if you want to bail out, here are the terms. You're not paying out any bonuses to people who bankrupted their companies. You're not doing any stock buybacks with the money. 50 or 65 or whatever percent of the money has to go to your actual workers. You know, like it, you have to restructure in, in this way or that way. Now we have leverage rules. You can't be over leveraged like you were before. If you were going to do a bailout, which I think is a debatable thing, whether or not you should have done it and which industries you should have done it for. But if you were going to do it, that's how you had to do it. And the fact that it wasn't done that way and it's been done the exact opposite way. And they did it not only in 2008, but also now with the pandemic. It tells me, yet again, I come back to my main point here, that the way it's structured now is literally the worst of all worlds. I would rather have the right-wing libertarian approach from the very beginning on the onset of just don't have the central bank, or I'd rather go fully in the other direction and say, just nationalize the banks. Why are we messing around here? Why are we socializing a bunch of assholes and CEOs and billionaires and, and corporations? Why are we subsidizing them? 
to keep messing up and then they keep getting money and everybody else is screwed. I'd rather have the whole system nationalized, nationalize all the financial institutions, because at least that way we're upfront about what we're doing. And you can, in theory, put down rules that make sense. Yeah, well, there's more in that system. There's at least more of a democratic check. I mean, then there are dangers, as he was describing, of if you get politicians too involved, they have short-term incentives and that creates problems as well. But there's no doubt that leaving it in the hands of a few unaccountable bankers who are very committed to telling you have no idea what, you know, we're doing special things and don't worry about it has been a disaster. It has been a disaster. And I will say, even if we had it so that you had more, quote unquote, democratic control over the Fed, and what I mean by that is the current Congress having more say over the Fed, I think they would have made the exact same decisions that they made because Congress is also captured by corporations. True. And then the media so, doesn't tell us what's going on. And the media and doesn't tell us what's going on. So the, it's not like the th story of every institution. There are no tweaks around the edges that, that are going to get you out of this one. I mean, I just described how you could have done it in a somewhat effective way. Going back to 08, if you're going to do the bailouts, have these rules associated with it, that's a way to have done it. But they didn't do it like that, and they haven't come close to doing it like that, and they won't going into the future. So then, you know, you got to go back all the way to the beginning and say, well, how the hell are we going to fix this thing? And like I said, I think both of the extremes have a much better point than the current iteration of whatever the hell's going on now with the Fed. Very eye-opening. It is, yeah. Very eye-opening. Um, should we preview our guests for next week? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A big one. So, and I want to be clear with everybody. Do not get hung up on the name of the show. Yes, it's called Crystal Kyle and Friends, but no, <laughs> Crystal and I have never talked to this person before in our lives. What we wanted to do is start opening up the conversation more to people who we disagree with um, and, you know, really getting into substantive points where there might be strong disagreement. We think that it's it's always good to have conversations and, and learn stuff from people who you're more ideologically in agreement with. But every now and then you might want to mix it up. Somebody who you find interesting and somebody who you might want to, uh, you know, really debate with on some stuff. So we actually have Jordan Peterson coming on the show next week. I'm really interested in that. You know, me personally, and I've been upfront about this, I find him fascinating in the realm of psychology and philosophy. I find that I deeply disagree with him in the areas of politics and religion. So we're going to flesh all that out. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We've both been already starting to prepare. I've been reading his books. You've been, you've followed him much more closely than I have. So I felt like I had some catching up to do in terms of like what all his thoughts are and what his style is and all of that. And I didn't want to take the word of people who like wrote an article or a critique of him. I wanted no, to yeah, you had to engage. Go deep. You had to go to the source. You had to figure it out. Because he's, he's such a polarizing figure that it's hard to find analysis and coverage of him that's actually fair and even-handed in either direction, I would say. But, um, but yeah, it should be a really interesting conversation. There's a million directions we could go in there. So yeah, and there's already been rumblings. Know. You know, I was told that within my community there were people who were upset that this, this may be happening. And oh, really? All I'll say is, listen, watch it before you make your mind up as to how you feel about it. Just listen to it. And then you determine whether or not you think it was fair, you think it was uh, reasonable, you think we did a decent job. Listen, I mean, all I say is I have full faith in our abilities to handle an interview, whether it's contentious, non-contentious, debate, discussion. Listen, I have full faith in our ability to do it, so you can't police who we're going to talk to. Well, also, this idea of like, oh, well, you shouldn't platform this or that person. He's, he's platforming of, us. Not so much, <laughs> he's, he's way yeah, bigger than us. Exactly. He's <laughs> one of like the most well-known public intellectuals. Yeah certainly in America, maybe in the world. And so to just be like, well, I don't want to engage with that at all. 
And keep I think it real. Silly. Almost almost every attempt to engage with him from a left perspective has fallen terribly short. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Slavo Zizek did a, a decent job. There are some people who did decent jobs every now and then. But there's been a number of just absolute train wrecks for people <laughs> who think they're on the left or going after him and they just make fools of themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, if you want that to be the only back and forth you see Jordan Peterson have with lefties, that's a pipeline to his ideology. We're trying to create a pipeline out of some of the things he believes, for, uh, you know, to us, to a more leftist ideology. So all I'll say is, have a little faith in your boy and and your girl and mm-hmm. watch and you determine for yourself afterwards whether or not you like the job we did. But anyway, so he's coming on next week. That's going to be incredible. Highly recommend everybody checks it out. Uh, everybody go subscribe on Substack to Crystal Kyle and friends. $5 a month gets you the video of the show and it gets it to you a day early. Remember, we don't take any corporate money at all. No advertisement, no nothing, no reading ads, no pre-roll ads, no post-roll ads, none of that stuff. It's all funded by you guys. So we love you very much. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And for those of you who aren't, please consider doing that. See you guys next week.